from the University of Groningen, this is MindWise podcast, hosted and brought to you by psychology students. Welcome and thanks for tuning into the podcast. My name is Emil and I'm a new member of the MindWise team. Today, Java and I talk to Hedrik van Rijn. He's a professor at the University of Groningen, working in the fields of experimental psychology, neuroscience and artificial intelligence. Recently, he has been inaugurated as a full professor and he obtained a Vichy grant that's a dazzling 1.5 million euros to finance his research for the coming five years. Speaking of his research, he's studying fascinating stuff. It all revolves around human time perception. In our conversation, we cover lots of topics. Some of them are his success in applying for grants, the subjectivity of time perception, and how his research has the potential to improve human-robot interactions. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode just as much as I did. And now I bring you Hendrik van Rijn. Hello, Professor, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for uh, coming over. Um, would you maybe like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, sure. Um, I'm Hedrik van Rijn. I'm a uh, professor here at the Department of Experimental Psychology and also with a link to the, um, uh, to the statistical department. And uh, my interest is in, uh, in studying temporal cognition. Um, I uh, am very interested in how time influences all sorts of our behavior. And I'm also um, very happy that I have the chance to, uh, to do some teaching, both in the Bachelor Program of Psychology and the Master Program of Psychology, but also, for example, for Artificial Intelligence and the BCN Research Master. So, for how long have you been here now at the University of Groningen? At the University of Groningen, I've been slightly longer than 12 and a half years. Um, at the Department of Psychology, I'm, I think, now for about eight years. Before that, I used to work at the Department of Artificial Intelligence. Mm, okay, so your interests have changed slightly? Um, I think that my interests are uh, have remained relatively stable. I'm interested in a very, in studying cognition in a slightly more formal way than what is typically done. So, for example, with uh, with computer models. And that would either fit well within the Department of Artificial Intelligence or within the Department of Psychology. And uh, when you were starting off uh, studying, you were interested in, in studying the human mind? Yeah, so when I started studying, I was um, really interested in how the, how the human mind worked. And originally I was thinking about going into a more applied line of research, so cognitive ergonomics. But while studying in Nijmegen, cognitive science, so it was a separate program that was focused on cognitive science, I started to realize that I was really interested in the basic um, mechanisms of the human mind and how these basic mechanisms influence all sorts of like application processes. But that my focus should be on these basic processes, trying to understand what actually makes us stick. Um, so, well, maybe let's move on to more recent events. So. Exciting things are happening in your life right now. Um, you got a, you're now full professor at the University of Groningen, and you got awarded the prestigious Vichy Grant just um, a few weeks ago. Um, just to explain to our listeners, the Vichy Grant is a funding instrument by the NWO Talent Scheme, which provides senior researchers with an opportunity to build up their own research projects for a period um, of five years, I think, and. Um, well, in order to do so, they are provided with 1.5 million euros. 
Now, there were 235 applicants and only 14% of them got awarded. So it seems to me like it's a very competitive environment. Um, can you maybe tell us at what point in this seemingly tedious procedure did you feel the most confident about obtaining the grant? Ah, that's an interesting question because um, I think the only point in time where you feel confident is when you really get the email of NWO and you see the subject line and it says um, um, that it's sort of like the email on which you've been waiting, but you need to open it and read through the first couple of paragraphs. And really only when I read it there, I knew for sure that I, that I would get it. I was lucky that I had reviewers who reviewed my grant who were fa fairly positive. And I had a good interview because after the reviewers gave um, their feedback, you need to go to NWO, to other researchers and defend your proposal. Mm. And that also went relatively well. But you just know that because this is a grant that many people want to apply for, many good people will, of course, apply for it. And there are actually, I think, more good researchers in the Netherlands than that there are grants available. So there will definitely be people who didn't get it this year who would also have been equally well equipped to actually do such a project. So I really only was sure that I got it as soon as I got the email. Now that you mentioned that a lot of other researchers would have been equally equipped to get this grant, um, what do you think gave you an advantage over the others? Well, I do, of course, think that I have an extremely interesting and extremely relevant proposal. And um, I think the a very important component is being able to communicate well why this work is so relevant and why this work is essential to be carried out, both from a fundamental perspective, but also that there are potentially only in the, in the, interme in the, in the intermediate future potential applications to this work. That has been that has become something that is more and more important and one could have a separate discussion on whether that is good or not but i think that for these grants it's uh, really useful to um, have an excellent fundamental component but that you can also explain why this has any relevance outside of the direct laboratory do you have to justify uh, to the committee that you will actually produce something with this. No. no, these are this is a funding scheme for for basic research. So all this money that you mentioned will go into basic research. Mm -hmm. But what we've done or what I've done in this grant is that I've collaborated with many people who are working in applied research. So for example, um, there is an, uh, an, a German research institute that works together with car manufacturers and they have certain questions that relate to my project. Mm -hmm. And these questions I've translated into fundamental research questions and they will be answered in this project. And then that will hopefully eventually lead to, say, more safe self-steering cars. Mm -hmm. But it's explicitly not intended to be, I'm not going to do research for industry. I'm doing fundamental research. Um, now, a lot of our listeners um, are students who want to become researchers themselves later down the road. And applying for such grants is, I think, a fundamental part of being a researcher. So is there something, is there an advice that you could give to those students of, on how to be more successful at applying for such grants? I mean, you mentioned communication skills and working on a project that can be applied in a certain way. Is there... Well, it's, it has become so competitive over the last couple of years that it is 
um, regrettably essential to uh, to have good grades, to have a uh, quite impressive uh, CV, um, to do all sorts of like additional stuff compared to just sort of like graduating with good grades. So um, uh, participate in research projects, uh, work the extra mile on a bachelor thesis or a master thesis to um, make it into a conference publication or to um, actually visit conferences, even maybe just as a student assistant to help out with um, well registration or something like that. But make sure that you have a CV that shows that apart from having good grades, you're also someone who has passion for this. Because most of the researchers that are working in this at this university, but also at other places, have really chosen this because it's something that they like to do. And of course we want good students, but the most most important thing is that we have students of whom you can see that they that they share this passion. That they like to think about something that might be very small and very miniature to many other people, but that you realize is an essential component of a theory. And I think that many of the many of my colleagues are in a way just sort of like people who are extremely curious and who just like to surround themselves with other people who are who are curious about the human mind or about chemical processes or about how language works great you need to have a sufficient level of grades to get in mm -hmm. but beyond that it's um, as much or even more about demonstrating that you have passion so maybe we now move to the actual content of your theory from what we understood, the project is going to be about uh, or going to focus on how our time perception works in the real world. So the usual theories compare human time perception with a stopwatch, but apparently there are some disadvantages to them which led you to propose your own one. Would you maybe tell us about those disadvantages and in what way you think your theory is better suited? Yeah, so my interest is timing, interval timing. And that means that I'm interested in intervals that range from about, say, 500 milliseconds to a couple of seconds. So it's not really motor timing, it's not playing the piano that I'm interested in. And it's also not things like circadian rhythms that we get hungry and get sleepy. But it's about the... Um, so you walk up to your neighbors, you ring the doorbell, and you stand there, and you wait. How long do you wait before you press the doorbell again? Apparently, so we can all do that, Never, no one of us would stand there for hours and hours. So apparently something in our mind start, started to keep track of time. If you've used hot tap water and then you want to drink a glass of cold water, you let the cold water run for a bit. How long do you leave that running? That's also something that we must time. So anything we do is timed. The pauses in my speech are timed. And if you think about a theory as a stopwatch, it would mean that for everything that we do, that I potentially could time, I should have a stopwatch for that. So I should now, during this conversation, have a stopwatch for the pauses that I make. I should have a stopwatch for everything that happens. And that automatically indicates that a theory that assumes that there is something like a stopwatch will have difficulty generalizing to the real world. And what my main proposal now is, is that the theories that we've come up with, these stopwatch theories, are excellent theories 
as long as you keep thinking about experiments that we run here in the basement of this lab. So simple experiments in which there's one interval that appears and di disappears and that you just need to do one thing with. But as soon as you go into real-world settings, like driving, like the examples that I just gave you, it becomes obvious that a stopwatch would not work. And my alternative idea is that we don't explicitly time intervals, but for everything that we pay attention to, and that is salient enough to be stored in, say, short-term memory, we can use information of the encoding in short-term memory to tell how long ago that event was stored. That's an interesting point about how an experimental paradigm can uh, create and then actually bolster a hypothesis like the stopwatch. Uh, how are you planning to research time perception outside of the lab? Do you have any plans for that? Yeah, so there is of course this 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 almost this contradiction in terms. We want to use we want to, so we like experiments in the lab because they're well controlled. And only when they're well controlled can we figure out what actually is going on. But on the other hand, I want to do these realistic tasks. So in this project, I've proposed um, a large number of sub-projects that is all going to sort of like be an improvement on the original studies in one aspect. And by then combining all these sub-projects, I hope to be able to say, well, this is how timing works in the real world. Mm. And as an, as an example of one of the things that we're going to do, um, there, are, uh, there are computer games that allow you to save your, to, to upload your save games to central servers, like um, um, StarCraft-like games, and where you have rankings, so you can see how good someone is, and you can see who played against whom. The great thing about that is that in many of these game, games, there are some sort of like aspects that need to be timed. So in one of those games, there's a certain action that you need to execute every 32 seconds. Now, the interesting thing is that you won't die in the game if you don't do this estimation every 32 seconds. But you will just be much more efficient if you estimate that interval correctly. Now, one of the things that we can now do is see whether proficiency of a player in that game predicts how accurately they can estimate that interval. But we can, for example, also look at, say, age effects or gender effects, although most players of those games are male, so that might be difficult. But we could also, for example, see whether the number of actions that the player is taking in between those 32 seconds actually have an influence of the estimation of that interval. And a couple of initial analyses show that that probably isn't the case. So that if you're doing a lot of stuff in between, as long as your mind is free at the onset and the offset, it seems that you can estimate an interval quite well. And that would immediately, if that turns out to be true, immediately falsify a large number of theories in the time perception literature that are purely based on lab tasks. So in that sense, they will remain laboratory tasks to a large extent, but we'll try to pick sort of like pieces out of the real world that we can use for figuring out how timing works there. Have you found brain area that is responsible for how we perceive time? Is there like one special part of the brain that's only responsible for this aspect? I think that, um, so there are like three or four different competing theories and these different um, theories all assume different brain areas to be highly relevant. There's an, um, a group of people in, uh, in southern Germany that really promotes the idea that the uh, insula is 
important for timing, for also for like emotion regulation. There is a group that says that the cerebellum is highly important, and we of course know that it's very important for the timing of motor actions, but whether it's also important for the timing of interval timing is, I think, a question still to be answered. And I'm more part of the stream of research that assumes that it has to do with um, frontal, parietal, and basal ganglia interactions. So that the idea is that the basal ganglia take information from other areas of the brain and use that to figure out how much time has been, has been passing since that event actually happened. And we've done some first uh, seven Tesla MRI experiments, so very high field MRI experiments, that do indeed seem to suggest that certain parts of the basal ganglia, the, the stratum, nicely predicts how we subjectively see the time passing. Which is interesting because uh, the basal ganglia is, at least was, mostly related to the motor system in the brain. Well, the basal ganglia are very important for anything motor-related, but it seems that the basal ganglia are very important for almost all actions, that it's really sort of like the central hub of the brain where all the information goes to and is being sent out. Mm -hmm. And what we have now shown is that um, certain voxels in, or we have shown, we have initial pilot data that seems to suggest, I think is what I should say, mm -hmm. that certain voxels in the basal ganglia are specifically sensitive to particular durations and that still means that it's sort of like taking input from another region and sending it out but that we might indeed have clusters of neurons that are attuned to whether this is a long or a short duration but that research is really so we did a pilot study to show that the ideas in the Vici project could work and there we got some promising results but this this is really something that we should discuss again in five years time Okay, we're going to record another podcast then. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> um, you also mentioned that like a few other universities, um, are you going to collaborate with other researchers from other universities or is it going to be a project that is be confined in the, here in the University of Groningen? No, I think that's... So one of the things that I really like about research is that it's um, an international project and that um, as soon as you... Um, become, say, a PhD student, you, you'll start to see that very often the field is not just your own department or your own university, but really is sort of like a group of people that could be anywhere. Now, for this project, um, I will collaborate with uh, people here at, at Experimental Psychology, but I'll also collaborate with uh, some people at Artificial Intelligence, like Niels Tatgen and Jelmer Borst, but I'll also collaborate with people in Amsterdam, um, Lindert van Maan, for example, who has a lot of experience fitting a particular type of models that we want to use. Uh, there will be collaborations with Imperial College in London, with Duke University, with Singapore University. So there are many different universities that will play a relevant role in this project. But of course, the main focus will be here. Everyone will be appointed at this university. But uh, students or postdocs or I will just go to different labs to collaborate on certain projects and to get their input on those components in which they are strongest. These are people that um, already work on similar, uh, finding out similar uh, yep. results. With you. Yeah, so these are all people that are either interested in interval timing or that have 
a particular expertise in a certain method that I want to use. Mm -hmm. So a certain way of computational modeling or a certain way of doing data analysis. And I think that in modern day science, you almost never can do something completely on your own. You always, it's so specialized that you always need to have collaborations with other labs. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's another important point when you ask the question, what should you do if you want to become a successful researcher? It's extremely important to have good connections and not so much good connections because you need the connections to get somewhere, but because research is not something that you do on your own. You always need your, your academic friends to point you out to new opportunities or to important papers that you want to read or that tell you about their research that they haven't published yet that might give you new ideas to actually also start working in that direction. Mm -hmm. So what you just said is that networking is really important to, for the role of a researcher. So what are the best opportunities to actually get this networking done? So networking sounds in my ears very negative. I think it's very important to just have many good friends among your colleagues. Researchers are just normal people and um, they like to, at conferences, like to, um, at the end of the day, go to a bar and drink some beers or go out for dinner together. So the main thing is to try to get into that field. And for that it would, um, as I said before, do volunteer projects, do additional work on your master thesis so that you can present it on a national conference and then hopefully your supervisor will take you um, to that conference and introduce you to other people and that way you'll start to build your career. But the other thing that's extremely important to realize is that your colleagues right now will be your colleagues in 10 years time. Out of the 30 people who get this Vici grant, uh, two other ones are my sort of like my best study friends. And we've kept in contact and every now and then you sort of like exchange information and these people will be so they were my competitors for this grant but there are also people that can that can help you and that can that provide support so it's highly competitive but at the same time it's competitiveness among friends to a large extent um, can your theory explain the subjectivity of time so how mood states and emotions affect the perception of time so when I'm bored 10 minutes might feel like 30 minutes, but then when I'm fully engaged in a certain activity, I might experience a state of flow and then hours can pass without me realizing it. Can, do you have an explanation for the subjectivity of time? Yeah, so if we look at this interval timing, so up to a couple of seconds, we have very good predictions about what will happen if I would emotionally arouse a participant. So when people are aroused, the idea is that their internal clock runs faster. And because the internal clock running faster, it means that you have the sense that a lot of time has passed, but then when you look on a wall clock, only a couple of minutes have passed. So that is an arousal effect in relatively short terms. Now the other thing, this flow idea, is really about minutes or even about an hour, that you suddenly look on the, on, on the clock and you see that already an hour has passed, although it only felt like a couple of minutes. I think that is due to you just not paying attention to time during this whole interval. You were so involved in this book or in the music or in the computer game or in whatever you were doing that you forgot to keep track of the passing of time at a relative longer interval, so at minute scale. And therefore, because you were so, let's say, obsessed with the other task, it just flew by. Mm 
But my work is mainly about that I think that you'll end an interval sooner when you're more aroused. Mm -hmm. So if I would train you to press a button after two seconds, without telling you that it's just two seconds, and I would then arouse you in some way, and that could be emotional arousal, sexual arousal, whatever kind of arousal, and I would then ask you to press this button after the same amount of time, you would press that button, say, two, three hundred milliseconds earlier. Actually, I've read about an, I think it was an experiment, or it was in this article about memory and time, where there was an experiment where people, where people with fear of spiders were presented with a spider, and then they had to indicate after 45 seconds how much time has passed. And they actually um, perceived that a lot, much more time has passed than it actually did. So after 45 seconds, they said like two or three minutes have passed. Um, I don't know exactly the times, but mm -hmm. definitely longer time than those 45 seconds. Does this fit uh, your hypothesis as well? Then? Yeah, exactly. Because you see the spider, your clock starts running, because you're afraid of spiders, this clock starts running very, very fast. And let's say that it's just sort of like sending out ticks. And you perceive all these ticks coming in very fast. So let's say you have 300 ticks. And you know from your past history that 300 ticks resembles about, say, two minutes. But actually, this spider was there only for 45 seconds. But because you were so aroused, this clock was going mad and sending out all these ticks, telling you that actually it was to you two or three minutes. Mm. And there is a good, well, ecological explanation for this, because if you assume that our perception of the world is based on how fast our internal clock works, then if you're afraid of something, you're sampling the world at a much higher speed. And that is good because you're afraid, so you can, well, then fill in whatever ecological explanation you want. Maybe let's move to possible practical applications of your theory. So, you're also working on a project called Timestorm, is that correct? Which aims at applying uh, findings of research on human time perception to improve artificial systems and, in turn, human-machine communication or interaction. Um, in what way does your research actually improve these systems? So. This EU-funded project, where two PhD students are working on and, and a research programmer, uh, has as goal to equip robots with a human sense of time. And the reason why that might be interesting is, in a way, related to what I said earlier on. I know when to look at you, I know when to look at you, I know how long my pauses should be, and I can also see, if you're executing an action, whether the different steps are executed in a reasonable temporal order. If you see someone do a certain action and he or she suddenly freezes, and let's say it's your partner, you would ask, what's wrong? But you can only see that someone freezes and that this duration is odd because you have a sense of how much time normally passes when he or she is doing that action. Mm -hmm. So that means that if you want to get natural communications with artificial systems, these systems must have a similar sense of time as we do. And then you can argue whether it's necessary to know which brain area is involved, but it's definitely necessary to exactly know um, under what situations we perceive time correctly and when we are subjectively influenced. So if someone is highly aroused in a highly emotional state, 
then it would be good if the robot would be able to adjust its perception of subjective time based on the assessment that the other person is aroused, something that we humans do without thinking about it. So, so we humans adjust to appear that we see as more aroused. Would you say that people unconsciously tune themselves to the timing of that person depending on their state? I don't have any, I don't know if about any studies that explicitly show this, but my guess would be, yeah, we do that. Mm. And I'm not sure if we're excellent at it, because the more aroused we are, the more miscommunications people also typically tend to get. Mm. But I do think that we are pretty good in um, adjusting that. And one of the sort of like circumstantial pieces of evidence that I have is that we are also very good at estimating when a pause in someone's speech signal is a break or just sort of like looking for words and that will be different so if i would have just a communication with you or just a communication with you then my pauses would be different because i would adjust it to your or your individual components but now that we're having a conversation with the three of us all three of us will have sort of like found a middle ground mm. and we can do that without thinking about it without effort Sort of like how people can coordinate when they're walking together and suddenly they start having the same pace of walking and the same yep. footsteps. Yep. Yeah. We are very much attuned to each other's temporal regularities. Now regarding the project of Timestorm again, um, have your research findings been already applied in that project or in the general terms of improving those artificial systems? Or is it at the really early stage of utilizing those findings? I would say it's somewhere in between. So um, one of the things, and that's related also to this Fiji, this Fiji project, is that um, we've been looking at the timing of natural actions. So one of our collaborators in Karlsruhe is working on humanoid robots that could help in the kitchen. But then it's important, for example, to be able to figure out how long certain actions take, from pouring milk to, well, making dough to whatever other components. But these events are not clearly demarcated. When does pouring of milk actually start? When you lift a carton? When actually liquid starts leaving? Or some point in between? And what we've been doing is that um, the people in Karlsruhe, the robot people, have come up with an algorithm that they think could work, could provide us with the time points that are important. And what we then did was ask participants, so first-year psychology students to look at those videos and to reproduce the duration of certain actions. And we can now show very nicely that what the robot estimated or what the algorithm estimated is very similar to what humans estimate, giving us information that indeed we can now equip robots with at least a sense of the duration of complex actions. So that part has really contributed to, well, potentially the robot that we'll all have in the kitchen in five years from now. <laughs> so now we have our rapid-fire questions for you. Okay, I'll uh, <laughs> prepare yourself. No, they're not that rapid. <laughs> mm. So this question fits to the theme of our topic today. So what's your favorite time of the year? Winter. And at what time of the day are you the most productive? Just before I have to stop. <laughs> when is that usually 
Um, nowadays, having a son, it's at a quarter past five. Given that you must be very busy right now, um, how do you use your time to relax? Or how do you try to relax? I just bought a new house together with, with my wife and, and son. So what I do for relaxing is a lot of um, um, tearing down walls. Mm -hmm. That works very well. <laughs> <laughs> But it does sound to me like it's even more stress to now have a new house. It's a new project even. It's an additional project, but it's a very different project, and having different projects helps well to... <laughs> so the one project helps to relax for the other one. Do you have any book recommendations for listeners who are interested in these topics that we have covered today? I think that there is a very interesting book called Felt Time by Mark Whitman. There are many things in there that I, as a scientist, do not necessarily agree with, but it's a very interesting expose on the importance of time and how it can be interwoven with almost anything that we ever do. Thank you. Um, yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you. It was very nice to talk to you about this work. Thank you. This podcast was a production of Mindvoice for the Department of Psychology at the University of Groningen.